It's good to see all of you here this evening. If you were not with us last Wednesday, um, I began a series on cults and apologetics, and the first cult that we're addressing is the Jehovah's Witnesses. I gave you a bit of biographical information about the cult's founder, a man named Charles Taze Russell. As I pointed out, as a result of the doctrinal errors that were in one of Russell's uh, early works, uh, there was a split in the group, and the larger group actually followed a man named Joseph Franklin Rutherford, J.F. Rutherford. They became the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, given that uh, Russell himself died in 1916 um, and Rutherford lived on into the 40s, um, you can see how much influence, how much more influence Rutherford had on the group than Russell was able to have on the group. That being said, though, Jehovah's Witnesses today still believe in the same things that they had been taught since their inception under Russell. And uh, many of them will deny that because of the bad press that has come to light about the kind of person C.T. Russell was. They've tried to distance themselves from uh, Russell, uh, but their writings are still full of quotes by Russell and certainly include uh, much of the things that he taught. If you want a more exhaustive treatment than that, I would encourage you to go and listen to uh, last week's message as you're able on Sermon Audio. Tonight, I want to move on, and I want to begin a discussion. We're not going to finish a discussion tonight, but I want to begin a discussion of some of the more glaring doctrinal errors within the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, before we do that, I want to remind you of our primary presupposition, uh, really a primary presupposition that should govern every study that we undertake, especially when we're considering uh, groups whose doctrine differs from our own. Our primary presupposition is that the Word of God, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, the Word of God in credible translations serves as the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the believer. Now again, we've talked about how the Bible has been preserved for us by God's grace. We've talked about how, given the comparisons that are often made between all of the existing manuscripts of the Bible that we have, uh, it's been demonstrated, uh, even with computer analysis, it's been demonstrated that there is less than one-tenth of one percent of variation between all of the uh, credible manuscripts, and none of those variants proved to be a problem doctrinally. And so again, that's an attestation, I believe, to the way that God has preserved His Word, uh, and we should be grateful for that. Uh, but we always need to maintain as our primary presupposition that this Word that we have in our possession is our standard. If you don't have a standard, what do you have? Well, you have uh, opinion, you have uh, conjecture, you have uh, varying opinions on what's authoritative and what's not. And in this case, uh, the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures, which is the Jehovah's Witnesses translation of the Bible, uh, is just as valid as any other translation of the Bible. Again, we must have standards. 
and the standards that we possess are Bibles that have been translated faithfully and accurately from those existing Greek and Hebrew manuscripts that we do possess. Um, I don't know about you, but again, I find great comfort in the fact that we have so many different translations, and you're not likely to be led astray by any of them uh, that are in the mainstream. Uh, Don't worry, you don't have to go looking for mainstream translations. You all know what those are. Those would include certainly the King James Version, the New King James Version, the New American Standard Version, the English Standard Version, even the New International Version. The NIV is a good translation, uh, probably not as accurate for study uh, as it is enjoyable for reading. But again, you've got all these translations available for you, and thankfully they're the most widely sold translations. These are uh, the most uh, prominently used because of their accuracy. And so, again, we want to be very careful that we have, as our standard, a good, reliable translation. Now, the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures wasn't published until 1950, and that was the New Testament only. In 1961, the entire Bible was made available. It's been revised two times uh, in 1984 as well as in 2013. Now, sadly, if you'll go on Amazon or go on uh, Google and you look up the New World Translation of the Scriptures, they have loaded pages with positive opinions about this translation. Uh, Don't trust everything you read on the web, right? Just because it's on the Internet doesn't mean it's true. Um, You go out there and you'll find all these glowing commendations of the the New World Translation of the Scriptures. Let me just tell you the New World Translation of the Scriptures, and I'm not being mean, I'm not intentionally being disingenuous, it's garbage. Why? Because we should seek to adhere to the Word of God rightly divided. The New World Translation is wrongly divided, as will be demonstrated Uh, in several places tonight. And this is not just so we can pick on Jehovah's Witnesses. I've known Jehovah's Witnesses. Anybody know any Jehovah's Witnesses? I've known Jehovah's Witnesses, and for the most part, they can be really sweet people. I mean, I don't hold any grudge against them personally. It's all the system that they are embroiled in that is so offensive and should be offensive to every thinking believer. Be careful, though, as I said last week, that you love these people, that when you do try to correct them, you do so with love and patience, as much patience as you are able to muster. Uh, The last thing we need to do is be making enemies uh, where the truth is concerned. As I said, Jesus himself said, be as cunning as serpents, but as gentle as doves. And I think that's the perfect advice uh, as we go into a study of these cults. Now, what's wrong exactly with this particular translation? Well, they say that the New World Translation is a translation of the Holy Scriptures made directly from Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek into modern-day English by a committee of anointed witnesses of Jehovah. Now, who are the scholars that contributed to the New World Translation? No one knows. There's not a list of them anywhere. Why? Well, if you ask a Jehovah's Witness... They didn't want to compile a list of the translation committee because they want God to get all the glory for this translation. That's not true. They don't want to compile a list because their alleged scholars might just be held to accountability by real scholars, as happens all the time. 
And so they didn't want to open themselves up to what they would consider unfair or unjust scrutiny, and so they just didn't publish a list at all. I doubt any of the Jehovah's Witnesses today know who was on the translation committee of this 1961 version of the entire New World Translation. So let me ask you this. Why don't the Jehovah's Witnesses use any of the other time-tested, well-established, accurately translated, reliable translations of the Bible available to us everywhere? Well, the reason they don't use any of those translations is because none of those translations, and I mean none of those translations, fit their narrative. It's very important. I mean, this is what Joseph Smith did with the Book of Mormon. The Bible didn't square with his belief, so he decided to write another testament of Jesus Christ in an effort to convince people that there's more than meets the eye, even with your Bible. Right, And it also establishes him as an authority. Uh, is this recording back there? Good, because I forgot to hit the button. Anyway, um, So you can see why someone would, uh, would publish a Bible translation of their own. If they have an agenda, it's much easier to just publish your own Bible and fill it full of things that meet your narrative than it is to use the reliable translations of the Word of God and try to get them to mean what you want it to mean. And again, we'll see how this happened uh, in the case of some of these texts in just a minute. I was looking for reviews uh, of the New World Translation, and I came across one critic who offered this honest assessment. Listen to what this reliable critic says. The New World Translation is unique in one thing. It is the first intentional, systematic effort at producing a complete version of the Bible that is edited and revised for the specific purpose of agreeing with a group's doctrine. The Jehovah's Witnesses and Watchtower Society realized that their beliefs contradicted Scripture, so rather than conforming their beliefs to Scripture, they altered Scripture to agree with their beliefs. The New World Bible Translation Committee went through the Bible and changed any Scripture that did not agree with Jehovah's Witness theology. This is clearly demonstrated by the fact that as new editions of the New World Translation were published, additional changes were made to the biblical text. As biblical Christians continued to point out scriptures that clearly argue for the deity of Christ, for example, the Watchtower Society would publish new editions of the New World Translation with those scriptures changed. This reviewer went on to give several really helpful examples of the intentional revisions that have been made. Let me just share a few of those with you. The New World Translation renders the Greek term staros, which is uh, the Greek word for cross. They translate that as a torture stake. Why? Because they deny that Christ was crucified on a cross. For some bizarre reason, they say, you know, uh, it was in the mind of C.T. Russell that Christ wasn't crucified on a cross, he was crucified on a stake, a whipping post, as it were. The New World Translation uh, does not translate the words Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, and Tartarus. They don't translate those words as hell. Why? Because Jehovah's Witnesses deny the doctrine of hell. I don't know if you're familiar with this particular term, but Jehovah's Witnesses are known as annihilationists. 
They believe that when the unrighteous die, they're simply no more. They're annihilated. This is really more attributable to a man named Arthur Custance than it is to Russell, uh, but it's likely that Russell got that belief from reading people like Arthur Custance. Well, they also avoid translating any passage uh, that speaks of Christ's second coming. Why? Because according to Jehovah's Witnesses, Christ came back uh, sometime in the early 1900s. They also deny Christ's role as creator. In Colossians 1, 15 and 16, most of our reliable translations say the following about Christ. Fairly well-known passage. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Now listen to the New World Translation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, because by means of him all other things were created in the heavens and on the earth, the things visible and the things invisible, whether they are thrones or lordships or governments or authorities, all other things have been created through him and for him. So why do they insert the word other? Well, they insert the word other there because they believe Jesus himself is a created being. So they say, well, if Jesus has been created by God, He couldn't be the creator of everything that came before him. So God created everything that came before him. Jesus was created, and Jesus created the other things. See how nefarious that is? The word other, by the way, does not appear in any form in any Greek translation of that passage. It's just not there. And so again, the reason they add it there is clearly to support their erroneous doctrine that Christ was created. So where did they get the idea that Christ was created? Well, they get the word, uh, the idea that Christ was created from a single word. And most of you know this word. Prototokos. I've talked about this word before. The word prototokos is a word that can be translated as firstborn. But the word never refers to someone born first chronologically. I mean, I suppose you could translate it that way, but it's really meaningless because the only time the word firstborn is actually used uh, in Scripture in this way is to describe not one who's born first chronologically, but one who is... Preeminent. The word prototokos means the preeminent one. And this is why you see it so often used in reference to the one who stands to gain the inheritance of his father. As a matter of fact, something very interesting happens in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. In the Septuagint, Jacob is referred to as the prototokos. But was he born first, chronologically? No, Esau was the firstborn, first space born. But this title of firstborn 
One word, prototokos, indicates that although Jacob was the second one born chronologically, he stands first in the order of inheritance. It's very important that we understand this. So, when we apply this word to Christ, it takes on a very important meaning. We're not saying that Christ was born first. As a matter of fact, we're not even saying that Christ himself in his standing as the word of God, in his eternal status, we're not saying that Christ was born at all. Firstborn in reference to Christ means that according to God, Christ is the preeminent one. In Psalm 89 verse 27, God says of the Messiah, I also shall make him my firstborn. And in the Septuagint, again, that's translated from prototokos. God then goes on to define what he means with the qualifier, the highest of the kings of the earth. So what he's saying there basically is that Christ is the one who enjoys the position of preeminence over everything. Now you might ask, why didn't our English translators simply use the phrase preeminent one and avoid all the confusion? Well, this is because in generations past, when all of our modern translations were being developed, the word firstborn was a very common way of expressing one's standing as opposed to the order of their birth. I believe in England they still refer to um, the child who will receive the inheritance as the firstborn. It's a legal designation, even though it might not be the firstborn. It's just the father's choice of who he wants to get the inheritance. And they're labeled legally as the firstborn. It's no different in Scripture. Uh, We've asked that question before about John 3.16 when we see the word uh, anothen, which means both again and from above. Why didn't they just say from above? Well, because... Back then in 1611, theologians understood that to be born again meant from above. Because that's the only way it's going to happen. And oh, by the way, Jesus explains that, as we saw, very thoroughly to Nicodemus. Right? Nicodemus even asked the question, Are you saying that I need to go back and do that again? No. No, I'm saying that just as the Holy Spirit, just as the wind blows and you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going... So is the spirit. And so he's describing the spiritual rebirth, that rebirth from above. Same thing is true here. We often read words in our English translations that were much clearer clearer decades, centuries ago than they are now. They've just been carried over. That's all it is. But in no way, again, does Prototokos refer to Christ as a created being. And yet they insist that's exactly what it means. Uh, because they really don't lack, or they, they lack the understanding that we have gained over the centuries to understand exactly what that word means in the Greek of the day. Well, the most well-known of all the New World Translation errors is John 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, John 1.1, 1, 1, you know what that says. It says, uh, in the beginning, the word was, God, right? The Word was with God. Well, according to the New World Translation, 
Instead of the word was God, they have it. The word was a God. Now, this is probably the clearest error that we have in their way of thinking. Why? Because I think I've said this to you before. If I haven't, jot this down. In the Greek language, there is no such thing as an indefinite article. You know what an indefinite article is. In English, we have definite articles and we have indefinite articles. A definite article is usually the word the. When I say, why is it a definite article? Because when I say, I need you to go to the car, it's generally understood that I'm referring to a single car that we both know what car I'm talking about. If I were to say to you, I need you to go to a car and send you out in the parking lot, you'd all probably go to different cars. Why? Because A and an are indefinite articles. Well, again, in the Greek, they don't use indefinite articles. They're unknown. They don't exist. So how is it that the New World Translation sticks an, uh, uh, an article, an indefinite article, in this passage? Well, again, it's to meet their agenda. In the Greek, you might see this sentence. I'm translating directly from the... Well, I'm not, but if I were, I would translate a, a sentence that would say... Car is good thing. Right? Car is good thing. That doesn't make any sense. That's silly. In English, that's silly. How would I make that unsilly? A car is a good thing. Right? So in English, we just add indefinite articles to make things clearer. We also add definite articles to make things clearer. The Greek doesn't do that. The Greek uses an entirely different method uh, to show the reader exactly what's being spoken about in a sentence. There are three general rules of Greek grammar and sentence construction that we need to understand. And just as a little PSA, if you're feeling extra nerdy tonight, pay attention. If not, just go someplace in your mind. We'll be back in a little bit, right? <laughs> I want you all to pay attention, but, I mean, if you're not inclined to feel a little bit nerdy, it's been a long day, I get that. Uh, but I believe this is something that we all need to know, at least from a mechanical perspective. I'm not asking you to all become Greek scholars. I'm simply wanting to show you from the perspective of one who uses Greek routinely, I want to show you just how bad they are at using Greek. Because there are three rules that govern Greek sentences grammatically. Rule number one. In Greek, word order does not determine word usage like it does in English. Let me give you an example of this. In every English sentence, we have a subject, we have a verb, and we have an object. Right? Everybody having nightmares of your high school grammar days? So we have a subject, a verb, and an object. 
can be a direct object, simple object, whatever the case might be. Let's have a sentence to illustrate this. Harry walked the dog. Okay? Where's the subject? Okay. <laughs> Stay with me here. Where's the verb? There's the verb. What's the direct object? The dog. In English, we would never say, the dog walked Harry. Um, so, in English, we, we're fairly clear because we've grown accustomed to this, this subject, verb, object, construction. In the Greek, though, when we're talking about, especially John 1.1, 1, 1, when we're talking about John 1.1, 1, 1, in the Greek usage of the word theo, right, Greek always determines what a word means by its ending. You have the root word, theo, right? What do you do when you want to indicate that that is a subject in a sentence? You add the sigma, theos. That's what differentiates the garden variety word God, just the word God, from the word being the subject of a sentence. Theos. When you look at your, if you ever look at a Greek New Testament, you'll see the word theos, you'll know that that's a subject. Right? Maybe. <laughs> There's another way that we can render by case ending of the word, and that is by use of the word, or the character, new. Right? So we add new to theo, what do we get? We get theon. Okay? Those are the two ways that we can identify a Greek noun as the subject of a sentence. The S ending normally identifies the noun being the subject, the end or the N ending, the new ending, normally puts it in the position of the direct object. So, if we translate our sentence, Harry walked the dog, you might come up with a Greek transliteration of that as Haros walked the doggone. Is everybody with me? Stay with me because we're going to build on this. You've got Haros, the subject, Walked, the verb, the doggone, the direct object. Still a noun, could also be uh, turned around to make it the subject if they wanted to turn it around. But this leads to rule number two. All English sentences, as I said, contain at least a subject, uh, a subject, a verb, and a direct object. Sometimes we write sentences which have a subject a linking verb, and what is called, I hope I don't throw all of you out of the roller coaster here. Sometimes sentences are subject, verb, and what's called, anybody know? 
predicate nominative. I can see I've already lost several of you. What is a predicate nominative? Well, it differs from the, from the direct object of a sentence in a really important way. Let's say I write the sentence, Chris is my son. What's this? What's, who's Chris? He's the subject. Here's your linking verb or being verb, depending on how you were taught. What's son? The predicate nominative. Predicate nominative means a word in the predicate, which is the second half of the sentence, which is simply a restatement of the subject. Chris and son are interchangeable. Chris is my son, my son is Chris. How would you do that in Greek, though? Well, in the Greek language, you would have That passage that we're reading in the Greek, by the way, is expressed as chi, theos, ha, logos. In order to reflect a predicate nominative, the subject, which is God, ends in OS, the predicate nominative, to show that it's referring back to the subject, must also end in OS. Does that make sense? So Spanish is the same way in a lot of ways when you have la is always uh, a modifier of as. Or las is as, la is a, and you get the idea. It's, it's kind of an idea that was adopted in the same way. But kai theos, ha lagos, indicates that lagos is a predicate nominative, right? Now, how do we know which one's the subject, though? They both have the same ending. So how do you know which one? It does matter because you can't say, and uh, the Logos, and God was the Logos, and God was, uh, and the Logos was God. It's not interchangeable like that. God was the Word. The Word was, huh? No, the way we determine which... Oh, yeah, in Hologos. I'm sorry, but that, that's immaterial. Here's the thing. No, that doesn't have any bearing on what I'm doing here. What I'm trying to illustrate is the one that's going to be the subject is the one that is given the definite article. Notice I didn't say indefinite article. There are no indefinite articles. The one identified as the subject of the sentence is going to be the one that's modified by the definite article ha. And again, you don't have to memorize this. You don't have to know this. I'm just telling you this to show you how they've misinterpreted it. When you know the subject, now you translate that into English by putting the subject first. What is ha lagos? The word, right, was 
God. You put the subject first, then you follow with the rest of it. The Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? God, and the Word was with God. So again, what they failed to do, again, they, they take this and totally obliterate it. They want you to believe that God himself is not being talked, of, talked about here, but a God. There's nowhere in that entire construction where an indirect object, or not an indirect, uh, um, it's been a long day, indefinite article appears. So the word A should not appear anywhere in that. And what they've done is violated those rules of grammar, right, to such an extent that, according to those who do Greek grammar for a living, true scholars, uh, it's, it's just not acceptable. They, they would be laughed out of the room for saying that, nope, there needs to be an indefinite article there. Again, you can put indefinite articles in Greek sentences. You can when you translate them into English, but they can't do any violence to the text itself. In other words, they can't, those indefinite articles that you do supply are just for clarity. Um, car is good thing. A car is a good thing. Uh, but you'd never read a sentence that really contradicted any of established doctrine by the inclusion of an indefinite article where there is none. Does that make sense? They've ignored the rules, and in addition to ignoring the rules, they've also added the indefinite article where no indefinite article needs to be, or even should be. Listen to their translation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, and not only that, it's a little g. Now, what do they mean by that? What do they mean when they refer to God as being a little g God, or when they refer to the Word as being a little g God? They do this, again, to place Christ in a prominent position, but by little g God, what they're really meaning is nothing more than a Lord. Someone who is exalted. And they know that. I mean, he's been given the name above all names. And, but they're trying to deny his deity. And so they insist that he's not who we claim that he is, which is God of very God. The problem with this is, and this was very strange to me. I was looking at the New World Translation today. According to the way that they've established their methodology in translating the Scriptures, they would also have to place in John 1, 6, there came a man who was sent from God. They would have to say there came a man who was sent from a God. I mean, if you're going to be consistent, you have to be consistent throughout. You can't just arbitrarily place things that aren't there there, except for one reason, that's to support erroneous doctrine. John 1, 18, uh, no one has ever seen God. They would have to say, no one has ever seen a God. And they'd have to make it a little G to be consistent. But they don't do that. Why? Those translations are as they are in our translations. They say, no one has ever seen God. Why don't they put A in front of it? Because, again, 
they haven't, probably haven't thought about it. The problem of consistency is really not at issue with them, I don't think. Uh, they're only out to attack those passages that speak clearly of the deity of Christ. Now, whether you understand all of that or not, um, just suffice it to say that the New World Translation is really not based on scholarship. It's based on the whims of those who decide to go into the text only to find places that they disagree with and then make them comport with Jehovah's Witness doctrine. And it's really insidious to do that. It's really, it's not necessary. Um, Their credibility is at stake, as if, you know, people are unaware of that. I mean, they have a long history of credibility issues, and they only added to it when they came up with their own translation of the Scriptures. Uh, There are rules that govern how we interpret the Word of God, and those rules are hard and fast rules. Um, You know, people are often mystified over the process of biblical interpretation. And you've probably heard people say, well, that's just your interpretation. Uh, There is an interpretation of Scripture. There are many applications of Scripture, but there's only one true interpretation of Scripture. And that interpretation can be arrived at through a thorough study of things like this, if you care to go that deeply. If not, uh, again, it's always safe for the average person in the world who's not striving to be a Greek scholar. It's always safe to go to helps, go to commentaries, go to reliable people uh, that have used the correct methods. And guess what you'll find? They're all in agreement. Every mainline New Testament scholar agrees with the fact that Jesus Christ is God of very God. Why? Because it's undeniable from a scriptural standpoint. You cannot wish it away. You can't translate it away. Because again, the way it's written in the original language is very clear in terms of what the word order should be. Again, the Greeks didn't really care when they wrote if you've ever read, for example, from an interlinear and you try to read the Greek, the English transliteration of the Greek, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's very, not only very wooden, it's just very silly the way it sounds without the indefinite articles and words are often misplaced. And the reason that is so in an interlinear translation is because what you're reading is the exact representation of the Greek words as they happen in the sentence. It takes knowing how the noun endings and verb endings are aligned throughout the sentence. It takes that knowledge to be able to put the subject where it belongs and the predicate nominative where it belongs or the direct object where it belongs. Uh, But again, that's work that scholars have done. And reputable scholars need to be consulted. And we can trust uh, in the things that they tell us about the Word. It's always wise to get many opinions. Um, that's again why commentators uh, are really reliable sources. The more you go to, the better equipped you'll be uh, to defend uh, this type of thing. Um, so what are some of the other errors that the Jehovah's Witnesses believe? We're going to cover more of those errors in our time together next week. I wanted to allow some time for 
some questions and discussions tonight. But among those errors, I would say, and we're going to look at this more in depth next time, is the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses deny, vehemently deny, the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Why? Well, first of all, C.T. Russell said the doctrine of the Trinity is a doctrine of demons. He said the doctrine of the Trinity is authored by the devil himself. One of the most... uh, Frequent things you'll hear from Jehovah's Witnesses is, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Do you know how many words that we use in our vocabulary, our Christian vocabulary, that are not in the Bible? Right? You realize the word revival is nowhere in the Bible? Yet we believe very strongly in revival, do we not? The word Trinity is the same way. The word Trinity is really a derivation. It's how we've derived from the Scriptures certain things about God that we know are true. And among those, I mean, one of the first names that we read given to God in the Old Testament is the name Elohim. And Elohim means what? God in plural. The plural God. Why? Because that I am, in our English transliterations, the I am indicates plurality. We read about the Nephilim, which is the plural of those giant creatures who once walked the earth, and so on and so forth. So Elohim indicates God in plural. And yet, in the Shema, which is the call to worship for the Israelites, where they would blow the shofar and they would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. Um, they had no problem in the same sentence referring to Elohim, the plural God. So what does all that mean? What did the Godhead mean when they said, let us create man in our own image, if not that there was a plurality in the Godhead uh, after which we were all made, sharing those communicable attributes uh, that God bestowed on us, um, there's places throughout the scriptures where we see both are not only the Father present, but the Holy Spirit and the Son are present in the same sentence. Think of Jesus' baptism, right? Uh, the Spirit descended on him like a dove. So there's the Son and the Spirit. And the Father said what? This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And so you've got representations all over the place that support Trinitarian doctrine. Why is it that the Jehovah's Witnesses don't want a triune God. Well, again, it's because their founders, Russell and Rutherford, uh, simply did not believe in the triunity of God. They refused to believe it because they couldn't understand it. We don't discount that which we can't understand, or we shouldn't. It's just not a good practice to do that. There are lots of things in the Scriptures I don't understand. And I'm sure you're in the same boat. But we don't just jettison those things. We don't just throw those things out as if they're of no account. Um, We seek to understand them to the best of our ability. And then we move on if we can't understand them. Guess what? When you get to glory, there will be no admittance test. You're not going to be given a little bubble, fill in the bubbles with a doctrinal questionnaire before you go to heaven. If that were the case, how do you think the thief on the cross would have fared? How much did he know doctrinally? Not a lot. 
Now, is that to say that doctrine is not important? No, doctrine is critically important. This God who has redeemed us, this God who has created us, this God who sustains us, this God who will one day take us to glory, to live in the presence of our Savior for eternity, is he not worth getting to know? Absolutely he is. Is his word not worth our obedience? It is. And so again, we, we study the word of God, not so we can pass a test at the end. We study the word of God because he's worth it. And he should be.